Live with streams. Dude, 10 o'clock, you're so happy. It's awesome. Um, well, I was just in Belize for a week and uh, had a great time down there. Um, pretty much fully recovered. We had about six 15-hour days in a row, which was long. And, uh, but it was good. And then we also had a basketball tournament um, one night where we had to represent America against the Belizeans. And the basketball tur- tournament started at midnight. And uh, we won every game, but my ankle lost one game real bad at the end. So I still have a hurt ankle. But other than that, doing good. It's good to be with you guys. Um, we have a lot of good things going on around here. I keep reading all of these articles and getting all these emails and hearing all these stories about how the church is in decline and how millennials aren't coming to church anymore or whatever else the after millennial people call themselves. Not quite sure yet. Um, and I just go, oh, interesting. And I'm not saying it's not true, but it's just not what we're experiencing here. Um, we're experiencing people being added to the church like every week and, and more every year for sure, getting discipled and plugged in. And, and we're seeing a lot of millennials and those after millennial people um, joining up all the time. And it's just, it's just a really neat season. I'm really thankful um, for what's going on. And, and we have a lot of things that if you are kind of still on the periphery a little bit, uh, I would just encourage you to jump in. Like we said, we have this Explore Express class. Um, if you're newer to Living Streams, it's a great place to get to know people, get to know kind of what's, what's behind the, the, the curtain at Living Streams. Um, and uh, we also have life groups going on, Paula Mayo. The life group thing, we keep hearing great reports about people just getting together and sharing a meal together, sharing some time together outside of this context, uh, getting to know each other. We got that raw authenticity, relentless encouragement. We need relentless encouragement. This is tough sledding in this life. Uh, we got biblical counsel and uh, genuine friendship happening in a lot of ways. If you're not plugged into one of those, there is a few spots available even now, but in January we'll kind of get some more going. And, uh, and I'm excited because, you know, the end goal for life groups is not just to get everybody in our church in a group, but everyone in the world into a group. And I really mean that because um, right now we're trying to establish these communities where the love of God is just manifest. It's just... It's there, it's easy, it flows. And then those life groups hopefully will eventually start to invite some people who don't know the love of Christ or don't have a table to go to where they feel the love of Christ. And they can come into our homes and our tables and it's already there, it's already present. Um, So next year we're gonna be really trying to make sure that's a part of the life groups as well. But you guys are doing well. Thank you so much. I know it's hard. I know it's so hard following Jesus in this world. But you're here, you made it. 10 o'clock, if you were real followers of Jesus, you'd make it to 11.30, but we'll take you at 10 o'clock. That's cool, too. No problem. (laughs) Anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. We're closing off. We're finishing up our church around a table, the table. I never know if it's or the. I trick myself every time. But church around a table, we're finishing up that series, and that's the concept where we've been spending a lot of time looking at um, the table that Jesus set up for his disciples, the Last Supper, and really what he was trying to impart that. And I mean, I've been teaching the Bible for, how old am I now? (laughs) Um, For 25 years, which is cool. 
Um, literally, like Sundays and Wednesdays, I've been teaching the Bible for 25 years. Um, I've been going to church for a long time, been following Jesus for a long time. And, uh, and I have, I felt like God has taught me so much in this last little series that it's, I feel like it's reshaping my heart. I love what Ryan said about the worship time. And I feel like my heart is being reshaped in a brand new way um, after all these years. And I'm so thankful and so moved. And if you, if you haven't been tracking with us, everything we have is online. You can go to livingstreams.org. You can watch services live. You can watch them not live. Um, then we also have supplemental material there as well that, that can help further your study and hopefully deepen your walk with Jesus. So with that being said, we're going to do church around a table today. We're going to look at another table, an Old Testament table, a table of King David. So let's read in chapter 9, verse 1. David, who was king of Israel, asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, I know most of you are Old Testament scholars, and all of this brings so much context to you, just this one verse and these names. But just in case, just in case you're not sure, or maybe someone in the balcony, you know, balcony people are a little strange sometimes. Um, we'll go ahead and recap a little bit of this. So David is a very famous figure in the Bible, in uh, the Old Testament. He's very famous in the New Testament as well. He's a famous person, an Israelite. He was king at this point. Um, he was the guy that killed Goliath when he was young. And right after he killed Goliath, he, he began to be a part of Saul's household in some ways. And Saul was the first king of Israel. Now, God had chosen this people, Israel, to demonstrate how he feels about everybody by really kind of having this one example. And, and he took these people out of slavery in Egypt, and he led them across the Red Sea. Moses, Prince of Egypt, we're all there now. And he's going across the wilderness, and he's forming them into a nation. He's giving them laws. He's giving them judges for those laws. He's giving them the way that he wants to go. He's delivering them from the oppression of those around them. And then he leads them into this promised land to establish them as a nation with land. And so they're in this place, and God has done so much for them. And they say, God, it's a little weird for us having you be our king. Can you give us a man to be king? We want to be like all the other nations around us that have a man who's king. And God said, if I give you a man who will be king, he'll steal everything good from you. And they demanded, and said, God, we want a king. And so he did. He gave them a king. And his name was Saul, the first king of Israel. And there he is, Saul's family. Saul became a king, and it seemed like everything was going good at first. He did seem to follow in God's way and lead in God's way. But as power came to him... He started to change a little bit. Ever seen that in human history before? <laughs> power began to corrupt. Power began to change the way he viewed things. He now was so afraid of losing power that he started to do things that were very unlike what God would want him to do. And he became someone that, for the people of Israel, was rejected. He even at one point became demon-possessed that we know of. And he was visiting witches to try and figure out what was supposed to happen instead of listening to the prophets of God. He became a very wicked king in a lot of ways. Very confusing. Very harmful for the people of Israel. And really became someone that, that when we look back, we think Saul represents shame. He represents the flesh. He represents sinfulness. 
It represents defeat. And the people begin to see Saul that way towards the end of his kingship. Now Saul had a son, the other person named here, named Jonathan. And Jonathan was awesome. He's probably my favorite Old Testament character. I really think that Jonathan is the person that gave David the courage to fight Goliath because Jonathan had done something just as cool a few chapters before. But Jonathan was King Saul's son, so Jonathan lived with this this not being king, his family really being not known at all, to now his dad becomes king, and all of a sudden they're thrust into the front of Israel's vision. And now they're the royal family and treated as such and, and known as such. And yet Jonathan maybe experienced all this and thought, this is great. Jonathan had some great exploits. People knew Jonathan. They loved Jonathan. But then Jonathan also got to watch as the whole tide of the nation began to shift from loving and honoring them to really being embarrassed and ashamed of the family of Saul, of the kingship of Saul. You see this difference? That's taking place. That was what Jonathan grew up to. But along the way, as David killed Goliath and Saul brought him in, hoping that the fame of David would kind of rekindle some of the love for Saul, Jonathan and David became best friends. Like, best friends. Like, serious best friends. And they loved each other. And David one day said to Jonathan, I think your dad has turned on me. I feel like your dad hates me. In fact, I think your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan was like, well, how do you know he's trying to kill you? You're crazy. He said, he was throwing spears at me the other day. (laughs) And still they weren't sure. He's like, well, I don't know. And they came up with this plan to really figure out, is Saul trying to kill David? Has Saul's jealousy and shame so gripped him that he would try and kill David? Jonathan's best friend. And so they came up with a plan. Jonathan figured out Saul was trying to kill him, and they had to depart. They had to break up their friendship. And David basically went and lived as an outcast outside the nation of Israel, wandering in caves, trying to just stay alive as Saul hunted to try and kill him. This is what's taking place in the context of these, this one verse. This one verse. And now David has become king because Saul and Jonathan went to war, and they died on the same day. And then for the next six years or so, there was this battle for who would be the next king. A couple of Saul's sons stood forward and said, we'll be king. And there was some battling between them. But then all the people's hearts went with David and they wanted David to be king. But instead of making David king of all of Israel, David became king of a place called Gibeah, was on the outskirts of Israel. And he was king there for six years while all this fighting and turmoil was going on. And then finally, after all that time, David was 37 years old, and he becomes king of all of Israel. Unites all 12 tribes under his leadership. And he followed God as one who seeks God's own heart, loves God's heart, wants to do what's God's heart. And he became a great king in Israel. And one of the things that he did after he was all established, after all of this craziness... He sat one day and he said, is there no one left of the house of Saul that I can bless for Jonathan's sake? This is what was in his heart. This is what stirred in his heart as king. It says, now there was a servant, verse 2, of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? 
Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So Lodabar is an important name as well. Lodabar basically means without pasture, desolate. Lodabar is also a place outside the nation of Israel, across the Jordan on the wrong side. A place that we find out was where all of Saul's family that was alive after all of that infighting, they fled for their lives. Fear of the other sons of Saul coming to kill them because they weren't part of that lineage. Fear of David coming to kill them because that was common, that a conquering king would come and destroy everybody that was a threat to the throne. So they fled. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we actually find out what happened to this son of Saul. As the people were fleeing, one of the servants of Saul picked up this young boy named Mephibosheth. He was five years old. And as he was fleeing, he was dropped and he broke his legs and he became crippled for the rest of his life. And not only was this boy crippled, but then he was taken to go live in a desolate place, hiding for fear totally overshadowed by the shame of Saul's name in a place that was desolate and without pasture. And so David says to Ziba, who tells him where he's at, so King David had had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Makur, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay David honor. And David said, Mephibosheth. Now I know you guys are looking at that name and you're just like, I gotta say it. Go ahead, you can say it. Say Mephibosheth. It's fun. It's fun. It's like the elf. Oh, that's fun to say. Um, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth responded, at your service. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And the reason that David says this, all all of this is so pertinent and powerful. The fact that he says Mephibosheth, and they put it in an exclamation point there, and there's a reason. And the fact that he says, don't be afraid, is important because for all Mephibosheth knows, David could be summoning him to Jerusalem to kill him, to get rid of him. Because the power has now corrupted David like corrupted Saul, and he wants to eliminate any threat at all. But David, when Mephibosheth walks in the sorry, he doesn't walk. When Mephibosheth comes in the room and bows himself down to David, David cries out, Mephibosheth. And, and there's so much meaning behind that name. Mephibosheth means the end of shame. Now track with me here. The end of shame is what his name means. So that name first came to him from Jonathan and Jonathan's wife. And Jonathan and Jonathan's wife, they had Mephibosheth towards the latter years of their life, of Jonathan's life and and Saul's kingship. So here Jonathan has watched the tide of favor, the tide of grace and glory and strength completely shift to one of total shame as his father has done these horrible things as king. 
So what was once an honor to be the son of Saul has now become a total shame. The people have rejected them. And Jonathan, when he has a son with his heart broken at what his dad had done to the nation, heart broken at what his dad has done to his best friend David, he and his wife agreed to name their son Mephibosheth, the end of shame. Now, I don't know if God spoke to them, inspired them. We don't get all of that. But we know that it meant something for these two people to name their son Mephibosheth because they were wrestling with the shame. They felt it every day. And their hope in this child was that he might be born and grow up and they might have thought and become a great king that will turn the nation of Israel back towards God and end and remove the shame of the name of Saul. But right after he's born, just a few years in, Jonathan is killed. Saul is killed. And in the hurry and stress of all of that, Mephibosheth, the one who will end all shame, is broken as he's fleeing for his life. The one who was to be king and end all shame is now crippled in both feet and can't walk. And shame remains and another layer is piled on. And then he's taken as a young boy to a place where there's no pasture. And there he's living basically disabled, unable to do much, unable to be fruitful, unable to produce anything of value. And every day people say, hey, Mephibosheth. Hey, Mephibosheth. Come here, Mephibosheth. And the irony just tortures him. As he's called to be the one who ends all shame and all he's ever known is layer upon layer of shame. And then one day he gets called to go to be with King David and he walks in and he bows himself to the ground and David, the king, the king that maybe took his place, I don't know what he's thinking, but the king looks at him and what does he say to him? The one who will end all shame, welcome. Welcome. Do not be afraid. And then he goes on to say this in verse 7. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, please, we know people all the time who fake humility to try and procure more favor. They say things like, oh, I could never do that, and they know they're better than everybody. And you're just like, blah, 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 blah. in your mind, in your mind, you don't say it out loud. But, but that's not what's taking place here. Mephibosheth is really shocked and confused. And he can't even see the potential goodness because the shame is so thick on the lenses of his life. And when he says to David, 
why are you taking notice of me, a dead dog? In a lot of ways, he was saying, David, please don't call me Mephibosheth anymore. I've changed my name to dead dog. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And shame had won the day. The one who was named to end all shame has become one who is just gripped by shame. He sees no good thing in him at all. And yet David restores to him all of the land that Saul had. That might even be more land than David had. And not only was it land, but Saul, who was the king, did just like God said. He took all of the best of the land. So now the one who had only known no pasture, Lodabar, now has the most fruitful parts of Israel as his. And one more thing, David says, and you will sit and eat at my table. Let's go on. Mephibosheth bowed down. He said, I'm a dead dog. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That plays into something later. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Israel because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So there's this accounting, there's this recounting in the library of Scripture of this guy Mephibosheth. And sure enough, just like most of his life he thought was just wasting away, shame had won the day, now in this moment's notice he's called by the king to come into his presence. And there in his presence he is restored. All of his inheritance and destiny is restored in a moment. He now has the ability to take and do exactly what his name and calling is for him to do. He has all of Saul's resources, and he can use them differently than Saul did. He's given all Saul's resources, and, and it's the most fruitful land. The, land. the guy who grew up in Lodabar, no pasture, is now having to have servants care for all of the produce that his lands produce. And then... It says that he's invited to eat at David's table. Mephibosheth around a table. And there when he comes up to that table, so many things take place, you guys. The crippled dead dog comes to that table. And I'm sure the first day it felt really weird for him. But as he's sitting there at the table... The only thing people see is who he really is. They don't see his crippled feet. I talked to my daughter about that last night. I was like, you like sitting at the table? She's in a wheelchair. And she said, I love it because we're all the same there. She knows what it feels like. And here Mephibosheth, however he gets to the table, he's sitting there. And he really is just like one of the king's sons. And there at that first day, I'm sure he felt very unsure and like, oh, this is weird. Everybody knows I don't belong. 
But then think about as the years go by. Year after year after year. He becomes so familiar there. Maybe even tells some great jokes from time to time. Maybe even gives a little counsel. Maybe welcomes another one of David's sons to the table because he's been there a lot longer. And all of a sudden, he's just there. And the, and the shame, all his past, he does, they don't know him like that. All they know is this person who sits at the king's table. This person who has fruitful fields. And day after day as he comes to that table, year after year after he comes to that table, his shame dissipates. His shame fades. His shame no longer has authority in his life, no longer grips his heart, no longer is the most powerful voice in his life. But now he's known as Mephibosheth the one who ends the shame for himself and for his family. And this is the call of God to you and I. We are called to be like David. This whole church around the table is trying to inspire us to be more like David, to sit, you know, before our kingdoms, <laughs> whatever they may be. Whatever resource you have, whether it's a house or a car or a table, or a good park bench. Whatever you have to, to assess the vastness of your kingdom and say, what can I do today to show kindness, to show the love of God to someone who might not know it? And invite them in. That's, that's what this whole thing is about. We're trying to inspire that and be that. And some of you guys are doing a great job at that. You're having people come across the threshold of your house that you never would have before. People that are so shameful you were afraid of them before. And now you're inviting them all the way to sit at your table. And you're not even afraid of their shame getting on you because you know Jesus' love is too powerful. You're having people come and sit at your table that have done shameful things. And they're feeling so free at your table to even confess some of those things so that they can be washed and cleansed. And there's so much more to come. But the real important thing that we got to notice here is, is we're aspiring to be David, but, but the truth is, is David pictures Jesus, and we're a picture of Mephibosheth. People who have a destiny to end shame, to remove shame, to set ourselves and our families and others free from the shame of the sinful world and our sinful mistakes. And yet we find ourselves crippled and low to bar most days. But can you hear Jesus calling? Can you hear the king summoning you to come? All Jesus wants you to do is to come and sit at his table. He doesn't care what you're bringing. That'll take care of itself. He's saying, come, come to my table. I have died on a cross. I have my body broken, my blood spilt to provide for this. And if you will come to his table every day, year after year, 
you will find yourself being someone who can't really remember how shameful you used to felt. You will come to his table and all of a sudden you will find your destiny, your true name. And it might feel so weird at first. Some of you are here for one of the first times at church and you're like, this is so weird. But as you continue to come into the presence of Jesus, what happens is your shame gets washed away. And it sometimes happens in big, heaping, cleansing waves. Sometimes it's just a little scrub. Sometimes it takes a few scrubs because that shame's sticky. But if we will keep coming to the table, if we'll keep coming into his house, coming into his presence, pretty soon we won't be known for all of our crippledness, all of our past. We'll be known by our true name. And when we went to Belize, I got to spent some time fasting the day before. All the, all the guys that went, we fasted on the day that we were headed to Belize and we knew we were gonna go there and we really wanted to try and tune in like, okay, God, I don't wanna think about anything worldly. I wanna think about spiritually what you're doing. And, and so I was journaling on the plane um, from Houston to, to Belize and I was just writing my prayers down and then I've, I've learned over time that praying should be more listening than talking. It's really hard to remember that. Um, but I was, I was remembering it, and I was like, okay, Lord, speak to me. Like, what, am I, what do you want to tell me? What are, we, what are we looking forward to? What am I looking for? What do you want to do in this time? And so then I just started to write some things down, and I ended up writing down about four different scenarios that I felt like God was speaking to me about. And then it was interesting because then it was like I was kind of on a treasure hunt. And one of the scenarios I wrote was that, that there was a guy that I would meet down in Belize, we're going to do men's ministry. I, there was a guy I was going to meet, and he was a guy that um, just really felt like his soul was dark. That the things that he had done in life had basically like broken his soul, or, or so like, so brought so much shame to his soul that it could never be lifted. And he just walked around with this heavy darkness in his soul. And that darkness came because he had really hurt a lot of people like actually physically hurt people. And I was like, I don't know if I want to meet this guy. And then I felt like the Lord told me that this is someone that he's even murdered someone. Now it got real and so specific. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds too specific. And how, how do you do that in a conversation? Hey, have you killed someone? <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry. You know, like, I didn't know how this worked, but the very first night we're there and we, did a, we just created these, these moments of, of church, church around hot dogs and taekwondo. And there we were and, and we had these guys there and there were a couple guys that I didn't know. And towards the end of the night, I just walked over to him and I was like, hey, you guys, I'm, I'm looking for a couple people. Could you help me out? And uh, they were like, yeah, for sure. That sounds awesome. And, and so I, I read the first scenario. I said, do you guys know anybody like this? And one of the guys said, I think that's me. And I didn't read the part about killing anybody. I was too scared to do that. <laughs> and he was like, that sounds like me. And uh, I was like, well, what do you mean? Like you feel that darkness, he said, all the time. And I said, have you, ha have you had a rough past where you've hurt people? He said, I used to be in gangs, so I mean, I hurt people all the time. And, and then I was like, well, I also wrote down here that 
that this person, you know, had murdered someone. And I said, is that true? And he said, well, he said, I mean, I, I had a lot of past in the gangs and stuff, but he said, there is one thing that's really heavy on my soul right now, and that's me, me and my girlfriend just kind of broke up, sort of. It's, and he was like, it's complicated. I was like, yeah, it always is. And he said, but, but she was pregnant with, with our son, and she just had him aborted. And, I, and it's been killing me, and I've, you know, it's been torturing me. And, and I, said, I said, well, and this, this is where I had a little turmoil in my own heart as I was saying, can I just say, hey, you're forgiven? Like, th- is, that seems like, no, here, you need to say these prayers. You need to show up church a hundred times. Like, I felt like there's got to be something to it. But then I remember when Jesus walked around here, he would walk up to people and he'd say, hey, I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. He'd said to a guy that got dropped through the ceiling, your sins are forgiven. He didn't know this guy. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, we talked about it two weeks ago, that the blood of Jesus cries one word and one word only, and that word is forgiveness. And I thought, I don't know how else to process this moment, but instead to say to you, I think Jesus has sent me here to pronounce you can be forgiven. And because of your confession that you've made right now, you are forgiven. You are washed. You are clean. Jesus is going to put brightness and light in your soul. And he's going to take those sinful desires and he's going to give you new desires. And I was like, can we pray for you? And the guy was like, yeah, for sure. And we all gathered around him and had this holy moment. And I, 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 this was just a week ago, so like I, I can't tell you, and now he's the president? Or like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow up on him as best I can, but I can tell you that it was a really big deal because that was a Tuesday night, and then we were gone the whole rest of the time, and then we came back Sunday, and I was really hoping he would show up, and he came to church on Sunday morning in Belize City for the first time as an adult. I think he really believed that maybe, just maybe, there was a spot for him at the table. And he came, and we had another time together and prayed, and I hope he showed up again too, because it... I mean, Jesus does a work the first time, but it, t- it, takes, it takes a lot of showing up at the table before a shame can finally not be the loudest voice in your life. But that's what the table of Jesus is all about. For you to go and get your shame removed, but also for you to invite others who are full of shame to come and hear about the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus can bring. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you so much for your table that you invite us to, that we can come and sit at your table and we can be sons and daughters of God, full inheritance, free from shame, both now and forevermore. And Lord, it's a marvel, it's wild, it's scandalous, but our hearts resonate with the truth of it. And Lord, I just want to pray for those right now that are full of shame. That know their soul is dark and their feet are crippled. That they would just be so stirred by your spirit. And that they would come to your table, come into your presence, even right now in this moment. They would say to you, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm here. 
wanting to be with you. Let's just take a moment in silence and allow the Spirit of God to speak. If you need to confess, just whisper it. If you need to just rejoice and praise Him for His grace, whisper it. stand and sing a final song about the love of Jesus if you need to come forward for prayer we'll have some people up front if you want to ask the person next to you to pray for you it's cool but let's just really make sure we don't miss some cleansing or forgiving or washing that Jesus wants to give us before we head back into this crazy world amen amen let's all stand